So anyway, Ben, welcome. Hi, I made it. You made it. Yeah. You made it from Twitter into, into Shadi's living room of all places. You know, I've been in the United States for five years and I've always wanted to live the American dream. And now I, th I feel like that's it. I made it. <laughs> the, to come to Wisdom of Crowds podcast. We're Wisdom American. of Crowd, be, be listened by Shadi's mom. Uh, it's just, it's such an honor. Well, she'll really appreciate that, actually. A little, uh, little hello to uh, Shadi's parents. Yes, indeed. Yes, uh, indeed. Mom, that's uh, Ben. You haven't met him yet. Oh, oh, um... Did she meet your Ben? I guess she, she hasn't met you either, did No, Mary. she's never met me. Oh, wow. She hears about us all yeah, the time. She, yeah, that's right. crazy. <laughs> one day, one day, after oh. coronavirus. After coronavirus. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll meet your parents. It's exciting. <laughs> no, so I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, so we're, we're also sinning is the other part. We're here, we're here uh, in Shadi's living room together, not actually virtually I mean, we talked about whether we would actually come come clean on that, but I think I think it's important to come clean also, on this podcast. Also, a little fun note before we get into that. Yeah. Um, well, you guys, <clears throat> our listeners should know that while while Demir was preparing <clears throat> the mics, I was actually cooking hmm. because I, I'm fasting today. So then um, it's about sunset time, and uh, so I made a little meal, and I'm eating it right now. Yeah. So um, our listeners will, in a sense, be virtually eating with me. Yeah. I mean, just make sure you're chewing your food off, Mike. It's a little, <laughs> it's a little, a little disturbing to have that, like, actually in people's ears. It's yeah. a little too intimate, perhaps. No, but I, I mean, um, yeah. So it's been an interesting time. I, I feel like uh, the last few weeks, this whole sort of not being together, right? Or, or the social pressures. I mean, we, we've talked about this, Shadi, the sort of social pressures of, of uh, uh, you know, not being in the same room. The last time we recorded the podcast, it was still somewhat socially acceptable, I think, uh, to be in the same room, but not really. I don't know. Do you remember when that was? Yeah. I feel like it was already getting to the point of just like, oh, well, I don't know about this. This is this is a little weird. But but uh, I, th I think it wasn't it. I wasn't feeling like I was transgressing. I feel like we're transgressing a lot more right now. Yeah, I feel like the stigma, the stigma has grown. Yeah. Were we sinning back then? I don't remember. So, you know, I, I went running the other day. Yeah. And uh, so now when you run like a Rock Creek, uh, people will uh, keep a certain distance, obviously. And when you run on an arrow path, like people will be nice enough to just step away for, for uh, a, a, a few seconds so you can go through. But well, one person actually turned her back on me. And I, for some reason, I was really offended. And I know that it's about, you know, do, doing the same thing. And, but I, I found that socially very violent as, a, <laughs> as, you know, you literally turning your back on something, you not even, you know, showing your face. Like maybe it's very French of me, you know, being obsessed with, with, with showing each other's faces. But, um, I, I found that to be like psychologically pretty aggressive to see someone turning their back as you're, as you're walking by. Is that, is that? recommended like that you don't face someone because you'll inhale their filth Isn't i mean i guess idea? in a way it makes sense yeah right? even it's walking like, on the sidewalk you'll notice how people will like keep a certain distance yeah like as they're passing by so i feel like on that very basic level and how we walk and like on the street that that's changed sure but so it's interesting that we did have um <clears throat> it'll be interesting to see how people respond to the knowledge that we're actually in the same room i should clarify we are socially distanced Ben is six feet away from me. Demir's probably like eight feet away from me yeah. or nine. Yeah. And so. I will be disinfecting these microphones <laughs> to all hell after you're done with it. But, but, yeah. but it's interesting that this has really become, uh, I think we've, we've talked about this before, but it's become a real dividing line with people is how do they actually approach social distancing? And I think there's also, 
people, because of social desirability bias, they're lying, I think. People are not being honest about what they're doing publicly. And anecdotally, I've been able to glean that a lot of people I know, you talk to them a little bit more, they are meeting with a small group of people. Oh, Most really? people are. So either most. they're... <clears throat> most. I, I would say There's anecdotal. a lot of secret meetings going on. Yeah, yeah. But... You, but what's interesting is that some people do multiple one-on-one, they do one-on-one meetings or like go for a walk in the park with one other person yeah. and they think that's like better. But if they're doing that with 10 different people over the course of two weeks, how is that so different than being in the same room with a couple more people? So people have these kind of interesting kind of post hoc rationalizations. I mean, arguably being with someone outside is less transgressive than being with someone inside, right? Oh, Tavir, don't, under, don't undermine my point. <laughs> but, but, but I get it. I mean, look, I, I do think that, especially if you spend your time on Twitter, there's a lot of shaming of people who do this. Uh, but, but the truth is, everyone's trying to find a balance and finding yeah. a coping mechanism, especially as uh, we realize that this is going to last longer than we initially thought. So we have to find ways to live with this very unnatural uh, moment. And... Um, you know, even if you continue to say, uh, to see, say, a, a, a small group of trusted friends or four or five people, you'll go on one-on-one walk. And there's lots of people I know around me who uh, continue to do this. Uh, it's such a, a dramatic shift from how we lived just a couple months ago, right? I would go into an office every day. I would see, yeah. I think, you know, I was trying to count the number of people I would see in a day. If you can count the restaurants, the bars, the traveling, uh, in our professions, we tend to travel a lot and, and we'd go on planes, you know, maybe twice a month. So even if now you feel like you're transgressing because you're meeting four or five people in a week, it's probably just 1% of what you used to do before. So I think it's still, on average, a pretty good balance. That's really interesting. Yeah. When you think about the people that we used to interact with, it must have been at the level of hundreds over over weeks. Maybe not for Demir. No, not for me. Demir's no. <laughs> never seen so many people than now. I know, right. <laughs> this is, this is, I've really come out of my shell. You know, uh, it's, uh, it, I think the 1940 cha- uh, uh, volume of uh, Winston Churchill's memoirs uh, starts with the sentence, you know, I feel that all my life had prepared me for this moment. Right. When it comes to prime minister. This like is the, for me. The, exactly. the quarantine is Demir's my 1940 moment. moment. My crowning He's moment. Rising to the event. No, but so. But it does raise a really interesting question that, you know, I think it's starting to, it's starting to dawn on us that there is no after the virus coming soon. We're going to have to live with some level of non-zero risk. So inevitably, we have to find ways to adapt and that means socializing with a small number of people who we trust. And I was just reading a Guardian article about this, that some kind of like um, scientist, maybe he's at Oxford, or maybe I'm thinking about the guy, Neil Ferguson, who, who, went, who, went who on just resigned secret, yeah. because he was breaking lockdown to meet his married lover, whose last name was Stats. <laughs> so there was like a whole joke about, you know, anyway, but um there, so there's someone who's doing modeling and he's trying to factor in a kind of mid, a moderate approach to social distancing, which he, he was calling like social, social pods or social pod, something like that. So everyone has like a pod of four or five people and they commit to that group over the course of quarantine. And that way they can monitor each other and they have a general sense of, who the others are interacting with. And it's sort of like a safe space. So I feel like we're all, we all have to kind of 
move move towards this new model of not completely locked down, but not completely back to normal. And um, we're all going to be taking some level of risk. This idea that there's a way to prevent any risk is just totally unrealistic, right? right. Yeah, it's nonsense, right? Look, um, I've been thinking about this like since since like the beginning. I, I feel... I still feel like we have all this like incredibly wrong somehow on some level this there's something wrong. That's part of it that I feel like the, this mitigation strategy is is unrealistic and unsustainable. Um, I, 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 I can't help but feel that in a year, once we've internalized this like risk profile differently, um, part of it will be the process of internalizing, but it'll be it'll be it'll be different. And we'll look back and not really recognize ourselves today, not because. Um, we were overreacting, though maybe there's, there's something like that baked in too. And this then gets me to thinking like that this is going to somehow unravel in a very unfortunate way where there's going to be a lot of second guessing. And you see that Trump is already doing this, right? He's already setting it up that uh, we overreacted, the experts overreacted, they ruined the economy, they ruined his economy, they ruined et cetera. So like the resentment game is kicking up. But I don't know. I, I Do you guys think about that at all about, 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 uh, does this feel off to you? And not for the fact that it's just unfamiliar, but that that fundamentally uh, this is not not working, just not correct. I mean, like, this is a perfect moment for uh, populist leaders like like Trump and others. You're going to see this in Europe because uh, first you have the issue that you just raised is completely taboo in public debate. Mm -hmm. That's true. Little less in the United States than it is in Europe, but still, it's it's not really socially acceptable to ask the question: Are, are we overreacting? Are we destroying our economy? You would say it's more taboo in Europe. In I, I Europe. think it's more taboo in Europe than in the United States. We're only because here the president of the United States is asking the questions. <laughs> so, um, but so in a sense, is that po like one could argue that if that's the reason that it's more okay here because the leader of our country is give, essentially giving permission to people to ask these questions. It can that be perceived as positive. I, I look, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's positive. The, the, the thing that's really tricky with this debate is that obviously you, you will never have the counterfactual. People are going to look at uh, figures of fatality that are, that appear artificially low because because we 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 did what the expert asked us to do we we did go into quarantine we do we did go into social isolation and so we all remember the twitter threads from 2 months ago talking about millions of deaths and now we you know see what's going on and we think oh maybe this was overwrought but no we we took these measures we have actually pretty high numbers in the ISIS. we took these measures as a consequence of, yeah. of, these of these models and they uh, managed to flatten the curve. But we'll never have the counterfactual. That's one of the biggest problems in pu public policy, right? Is that in, in France, we went through this huge debate um, 10 years ago uh, uh, during uh, SARS. So the health minister at the time bought uh, a completely outsized number of masks and, uh, and uh, testing devices. And uh, this created huge controversy it was seen as public waste. She had to resign and her, and her political career was over 10 years really? ago. Really? Wow. She disappeared for 10 years. She was rehabilitated last month. <laughs> now she's a national hero. She's on TV all the time. And she's like, I told you so, because in the meantime, we got rid of all the masks because it's so controversial. So all the masks that we had, that she had uh, purchased 10 years ago, 
disappeared. But the problem is that you never have the counterfactual, right? So when the crisis doesn't occur, it appears like you completely overreacted or you were off, but maybe it's because precisely you took the, the measures. But it will, and you're right, I think a lot of us are at least asking privately this question. I've yeah. heard this conversation right. so many times right. with so many friends. Are we doing too much? Is this crazy? Is this destroying the economy? Right. No one really. No one wants to tweet about it. No one wants to write a serious op-ed about it. And uh, I, I, I feel like this is going to be Shadi's uh, piece in the Atlantic soon. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and and that's you know it's 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 a godsend for populist leaders. Here's the thing though, you know, it's 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 a little more complicated because it's not that no one will do it. The right is doing it already and they're lining up in this country certainly to do it. I don't know what it's like in France and whether whether the opposition to Macron is lining up behind this. You know, we had a, a briefing with uh, uh Shadi's colleague Constanza Stetzenmüller and uh, at the American Interest and she talked about basically how again the populists are sort of taking this line. But, but uh, Demir, I don't think I was invited to that. You one. weren't invited to that. <laughs> oh, by the way, you know what it just occurred to me? Yeah. We didn't give a proper so it's interesting because we know Ben so well that it wouldn't occur to us that he would need an introduction. But just because he's talking about French and European politics, we should mention. I would like an introduction. <laughs> Hi, he's, he's the director of the uh, the Future Europe Initiative at the Atlantic Council. That's right. And he's uh, also an accomplished author. Yeah, he's the author of a book. Um, so, so it's called Le Paradis Perdu. Which, if my French translation is correct, that would mean paradise lost. Paradise lost. And uh, um, also, you know, a little bit of backstory. Uh, it's probably, uh, you remember it, Shadi, and I think, I hope you remember it, Ben, but the whole idea of this podcast was the three of us, we were supposed to do this. And then we tried for a long time to get our <laughs> schedules to, to match. We could never do it. So sadly, we did it without oh, Ben. Oh my God, it took six months for us to actually so, synchronize. So the it, finally, it finally took yeah. six months to get Ben on the podcast after this. And pretty much coronavirus, because if it wasn't for coronavirus, Ben, ben would still be, be flying. traveling this there's, week. there's been less traveling for me these last couple months. Exactly. So this is actually a reunion podcast of sorts, is how I like to think of it, even though it's his first, it's his first time with us. Again, back to, back to the, 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 the question about this, you know, um, you're, you're right that no, that we're talking about it. a lot of people are talking about it, not writing it, et cetera, but the right wing's doing it and they're doing it, I think, in Europe as well. Um, but here's the interesting thing as that argument has evolved. I mean, it was, it was in, in March, I think, late March that the Wall Street Journal first did the op-ed saying there's a tension between the economy and this. And obviously we need to do something, but let's not lose sight of the fact that there are costs on the other side. I thought it was a very good and, and sensible one. Since then, you know, the argument, like a lot of heavy breathing on the right has come out. And it's been very irresponsible, I think. But now you're getting a new kind of, I think, you know, reality coming out in that sort of discourse about the mistake. And this resonates with me more. And this is the part where I think that Trump politically you know, everyone's like, oh my God, the kind of insane shit he's saying right now, that it may not be as catastrophic for him as it sometimes seems. This whole thing, like we're going to have to, you know, he's uh, exhorting Americans to be heroic and go out there and, and treat this as a, you know, uh, as a struggle. Because when you think about what is it that that is happening here, we have um, uh, a population that is vulnerable and we but there's nothing we can do for them except isolate them. That's the reality that's emerging. For the rest of the population, there's heightened risk, but it's not really off the charts. And early on when the data was coming in, there were these anecdotal stories of young people falling and, oh, it doesn't discriminate on age. No, but it does discriminate on age in a big way. I think, you know, obviously there's risk for people who aren't in the, in the, in the categories and we don't know the mechanisms for it's working, but 
it's 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 limited risk. So what we are going to, I think, the new normal short of a vaccine and short of everything else is kind of like a guilty life as it normally was with a certain sense of slightly elevated risk, uh, a good chunk of the population self-quarantining for fear of life um, and probably an elevated death toll. So basically, I mean, and I know I'm pretty sure Trump is preparing the nation for this is like that, you know, 3000 dead a day. I don't know what the normal death rate per day in America is. I don't know if the 3000 figure that was in their reports was excess deaths that they were talking about or just 3000 deaths. But I think you're going to your the new normal is going to be just like a, like a background noise of like an elevated death, which will will normalize at some point. Yeah, but that's old, a scary thought. It's a scary thought, but I think it's it's how it's I mean, I'm just trying to think through this and then think through the politics of this. I think you're going to have Democrats pointing to this elevated death toll. And as it gets normalized among people, they're going to be like, yeah, I don't know. This is I don't know. I don't know how that well, plays I, out. I've seen a lot of so I'm I'm and I want to ask Ben about this because I know he has a different approach. Like I think all three of us do of not following coronavirus news very closely. Yeah on Twitter. And I think that's helped for our sanity and for just, um, trying, tr trying to continue with our lives. But, you know, I, I have seen some people basically saying that Trump is sacrificing the most vulnerable people in the, of the population for the economy, but they're, they're talking about it. Like, like he almost like he's murdering them. Like Trump is in a sense, intentionally, not trying to kill people, although maybe that's what people are saying. I just find that bonkers. I don't think he's trying to kill people. But in effect, his policies are murder. That is a common narrative that I'm seeing on Twitter on the center left, left side of the spectrum. But in effect, all reopening, any reopening plan anywhere in the world, Trump or not, means some risk of elevated death toll uh, so, I mean, Ben, how do you see this if you're kind of comparing with France or debates that you've seen in Europe? How do you how do we get our heads around this? Well, one thing that struck me, uh, there's this uh, French journalist, uh, Central Left, uh, a couple of weeks ago who had this Twitter thread basically saying we're doing too much. We're destroying our economy. This is crazy. And he got a lot of pushback from uh, political conservatives from some uh, writers around Le Figaro, the center right a conservative uh, uh, newspaper. And, and they came at it with a um, very sort of pro-family, pro-life argument saying, you know, our el elderly are more important than our financial markets. And, uh, and that's a very respectable conservative take. And it's interesting to see part of the American right that's not at all going for this narrative and, and huh. going for a much more capitalist and I would say almost Darwinian kind of narrative when you, you know, hear Laura Ingram on Fox News and... Uh, others like this that are, I think, a little more troubling. It was something interesting a, um, a couple months ago. Uh, I think all, a lot of us were puzzled, at least in Washington, as we usually are, uh, by the fact that Trump gained uh, a few points in popularity yeah. and that actually you had more than 50% of the American public supporting his approach to coronavirus. I think it was interesting because it was almost the first time since his presidency that something was not read solely through the lens of, of a partisan divide. You actually had more than the number of Republicans in the country who supported Trump. And so, you know, some of us were talking about this and thinking, well, you know, maybe there's a rally around the flag effect and we're in a crisis and people are supporting their leader. But I, there's also an argument to be made that 
I think Republicans were supporting Trump because they always supported him. You probably had a rally around the flag effect, but you probably had the third effect as well, which was that maybe a sizable part of the American population also thought that he was right, that this was uh, overblown, that we were doing too much about this. So I think you had a, a group of people who were supporting him because they thought he was on top of it and he was being strong on the crisis, and a group hmm. of people supporting him because they thought they agree with him that this was just crazy and the media was uh, was an overkill. It's interesting you mentioned. I don't I don't want to name names uh, in case they um, listen to the podcast, but um, I was talking. You probably to, don't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, a couple um, relatives of mine who I was talking to earlier on during the crisis. And when Trump had started his press briefings and it seemed rather new and innovative and all of that, now it's just like, God help us. They were, they reacted and they're, these are people who are anti-Trump, um, Democrats, but not very politicized and not very ideological. They're more, let's call them normal Democratic voters. So in other words, unlike a lot of the people that we follow on Twitter who are very politicized and always following every little tidbit, and they were like, Trump, they had a general vibe that Trump has risen to the occasion. Oh, Trump is giving these briefings. He's showing leadership. They don't like him, but they were able to get past that and say, oh, he's our president. He's what we got. Yeah, He's the one who will be leading us through this crisis for better or worse. We're glad that he's stepping up yeah. and we want him to step up. So my sense is that the third effect that you're talking about are probably people who are like, hey, you know, could be worse. He's at least doing something. He's got the coronavirus task force with. And, 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 and by the way, it's actually hard to know what kind of job they're doing because the news is so focused on Trump and yeah. whatever he's saying on taking a sentence out of the context of Jared Kushner's uh, briefing that, you know, I'm reading reports that uh, they're actually doing well on ventilators uh, that, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's actually easy to find masks in the United States, yeah. much, much more so than in France. Mm. So it's hard for me also to know if the U S is really underperforming. I mean, we've been talking about this a lot privately, but when you look at uh, per capita, the U.S. is below the European Union, right? And well, at least Western Europe, right? For sure. No, I I think that the 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 dance that that you know journalists are playing with with figures and all of this is is another is another thing because there is you know what Shadi was alluding to earlier, but there's a uh, there's an almost glee at watching you yeah. know and building up the failure of America. It's like oh my god, there he's fucking it all up. This is it. You know, this is the moment where Trump really just shits the bed and and like everyone sees it and finally wakes up. Um, Wait, so we actually have more masks and ventilators than a lot of Western European countries? So we're, we're actually doing better on some of these metrics? You know, I, once again, I think the jury is still out and we'll be able to compare this maybe in years. But right now, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of media report. And by the way, some glee coming out of the European Union where I, I think everyone should be humble on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah. We were overwhelmed by this. We were also misinformed about the, the extent of this uh, coming out of China. And um, and it, clearly there was a lot of disorganization, division. Everyone fucked it up. Yeah. So I, I think you know we should all take it down a notch. And and you you know I I'm getting phone calls from my relatives in France asking, Are you okay? Are yeah, you okay? Right. It seems like apocalypse in in the United States. And once again, I mean you have uh, specific spots when it's where it's terrible, like New York. But 
if you take the whole country, obviously you can't, there's six times more Americans than there are French, Italians, or Spanish. You can't compare the absolute numbers. You have to look per capita. That's right. And per capita, the, the U.S. Is, is, is below. I mean, once again, I, I don't say this to, uh, to cheer the U.S. reaction and rejoice, and, and, and I think we'll see in a, in a few months or, or years. But right now, it's just a blurry picture. But is it also fair to treat the U.S. as one country the way we treat France as one country or, or even the UK in the sense that the, the, the regional variation is quite striking. And I think the gap will grow between regions that really try to do a quick reopening and then New York, if it stays in lockdown for like the next two months, like that's, com that's two completely different worlds of approach. Yeah. And I, I'm starting to wonder if we can really say... I mean, should we start looking at deaths per million per state and making more careful distinctions internally in the U.S., just as we wouldn't take the EU figures overall because the approaches within the EU vary so widely? I mean, how, how would you sort of how would you see that? But even before you jump into that, I mean, keep in mind, it, it's it's your point is, is spot on, but take it even more so. Like even Italy, you ha it's so regional, right? I mean, I was asking you weeks into this, like, where in France is this? Everyone's like, oh, French numbers. Where in France? You know, and, and it's regional in France, too. It's not it's not the whole country. It's like that. It's equally thing. That's one of those one of those things that it's part of our mental map is talking about per country stuff. Per capita is a much better thing, but even that's like a And weird then you one. go into these grim calculations, right? So my grandparents are in their 80s. So obviously they're part of a vulnerable population and we're, you know, very fortunate that they've been uh, quarantining fairly early. Uh, but they're also in a very safe region. They're in Bordeaux and it's one of the less exposed regions in the country. So what should they do? You know, they, they call us and they, you know, because they, they're so bored and they want to get out. And so, They, they, they show us the figures and they say, well, this region's fine, but you're part of a vulnerable population. Because Or, in France, there's no regional variation. Oh, there's a lot of regional well, variation. Well, in terms of the lockdown policy, there's lockdown in the entire... So that's, that's... Well, they're debating this right now, actually. It's a very interesting question because they're debating this uh, region. They're debating this uh, in terms of categories of population, who can reopen. There's a big debate right now about reopening schools or not. And by the way, this, this connects to what you were saying earlier about how we're going to live after this and how we're all going to calculate what, can, you know, having uh, just smaller groups of friends that we hang out with, like trusted groups. And uh, it's so interesting for me to compare uh, such a centralized state as France where basically everyone's expecting the president to decide on everything. You know, what time are we going to get out? What restaurant should open? When are we going to go back to school? With the United States, where I think it's going to be much more individualized. We're all going to make our calculations. We're all going to try to adapt in a way or another. And the country is going to progressively reopen. But when you look at the polls, you still have a majority of Americans saying that they don't want to go back to the theater. They don't want to go back to restaurants. They don't want to use airplanes. So the economy is just not going to reopen all of a sudden. Of course. Uh, I think there's going to be more responsibility. There's a crazy amount of expectation and pressure on the state and on the person of the president in a country like France. And so um, that... Okay. That's really interesting. And I mean, that's probably like a longer conversation that we should have the cultural aspects that lead French people, French citizens to be more deferential to state authority. And I tweeted something along these lines and some people were like, Oh my God, how dare you say the French are deferential to state centralized state authority? Look at all the protests they have and this and that. I think they were missing my point in certain ways, but you know, I'll just also mention an interesting aside. 
Um, I haven't actually met her in real life, but we were talking about some some research stuff over Zoom. Uh, maybe you know her because she's. I don't want to assume that because <laughs> your friend knows every, every single French person. It's a good but, assumption, though. Uh, uh, her name is Sophie Lemire. Um, she's a she's a fellow at Ned, but she right as coronavirus was starting to get worse before the lockdown, she decided to leave D.C. Um, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I should say exactly where she is, but she's I don't even know exactly where she is. She's in a, a random island in the middle of nowhere that is technically French territory. So they have zero coronavirus deaths. But they're on full lockdown, just as it would be full lockdown in Paris, which is bonkers to me as an American. There is no, there is no kind of accepting differences, even in an island that has nothing to do with France. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good example. And by the way, you know, you're talking about the protests, the strikes, and whether people are differential or not. I wouldn't say they're differential. The French people are very rebellious. But there is this this expectation that uh, politics is gonna is a direct relationship with the person of the president who's embodied by uh, by the king before, and in a way, the strikes and the protest are a direct consequence of this because when you don't have intermediary bodies, when you don't have strong parliamentary counterpower or uh, uh, local power, you know, like you have states here, you know, our, our mayors, our mayors have executive power, but then, you know, regional leaders are very weak compared to what they could be in Germany and the United States. And basically, if you lost the election, or if your side lost the election, or if you're unhappy about something, your only recourse is to take the street and establish a direct balance of power with the hmm. president. Hmm. Because in, in the United States, you know, you can be a Democrat and hate the president, you still have the majority at the House of Representatives. You know, you still have people, you, you can still live in a state where the governor is a Democrat. So you, you still have intermediaries that um, that respond to uh, uh, to your political demand. In France, it's much more complicated. Mm. So that's okay. I, I actually thought of, that, thought of it in that precise way, but that must be a little bit disempowering. If you're a French citizen and you're pissed off and there's literally no recourse on a kind of in-between level, I mean, how do I mean, once again, well, that I, I think that explains to a large extent our culture of striking and protest. Yeah, because that's that's the it's the rational way you have to establish pressure on the government to establish a, a balance. Could power. you have a majority in parliament of one party and the president? I mean, that, that can theoretically happen. I know it's rare historically. So it's, it's happened a few times. It's much more complicated now, but it, it's happened a few times. It's called cohabitation. Uh, and basically it's it's a very weird system where. If the president has majority in parliament, uh, he's extremely powerful. Uh, if he doesn't, he basically, the prime minister basically is the head of executive power. The president is mostly ceremonial or do and foreign, uh, foreign policy. policy. Um, but then there's a lot of tension. So that's why now, I'm sorry we're getting into nitty gritty French no, institutions, no, no, but that's good. why now <laughs> we love it. they've aligned uh, um, the terms to five years. Uh, the, the parliamentary term and the presidential term, hmm. the presidential term used to be seven years. They've aligned them. And the parliamentary elections are always a month after the presidential election. So basically now people tend to vote for the party of the guy that they just elected president. It, that was done mostly to avoid cohabitation because we'd had that in the past and it just, 
leads to conflict at the head of uh, at the head of the state. There's too much gridlock. People the, want to get the, the the president is constantly trying to undermine his prime minister or vice versa. It was extremely entertaining to watch, but completely sounds like American politics. Right. <laughs> but 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 so you know, just to push back on the the culture thing and the the you know, I mean. Fair point, Ben, about, you know, French being rebellious and the rest of it. But the interesting thing is, has been how polities have actually mostly taken heed of this sort of thing. I mean, across the West, you've had, you've had, there hasn't been that much variation. Americans are, you know, freedom, et cetera, but everyone's staying home, more or less, apart from what we're talking about our friends, like, and us breaking the law here. But like, um, but red, I mean, red states, though, it does seem like, all I'm saying is there it hasn't been unruly yeah. right I mean it's 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 expressed itself politically differently but it hasn't been and I think culturally I don't know I, I I'm not seeing like a, a huge difference there um the, but there is a raucousness about the American debate now which Ben sort of alluded to earlier where you see like images there was this like really funny um clip of a reporter in Florida and um, she was on a beach and there were people behind her, like more people were returning to the beaches and all that. But someone was opposed to that. And he was wearing a Grim Reaper yes. costume and all black. And he had like a sickle and he was standing behind her being like all scary. And I think that before you actually watch to the end, you're like, wait, is he going to like do something to her? But he was there in a sort of lone protest to be like, I'm not comfortable with reopening the beaches and people were saying, oh, my God, look at this. America's a mess. Look at look at this craziness. But when I saw that image, I thought to myself, this is what I love about my country. The fact that it's so out there. It's so pluralist. It's it's out of control. But there's something about it that contributes to this vibrant democratic spirit. That's kind of how I responded to it, which I think culturally is different. I don't think we would have seen those images in in every in European countries to the same extent. I don't think we have. Well, first of all, there's actually full lockdown in a lot of countries, at least up until recently. So, and you wouldn't. And I don't think people wear Grim Reaper costumes in. Well, no, but I mean, he could, he could wear a Grim Reaper costume because it's Florida, and you can walk around. But I'm saying, like, if Florida instituted a lockdown, I don't think you'd have like mass citizen protests. I think I, I, my sense is that Americans are 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 as uh, cognizant and respectful of you know diktats that come out from local government, governorships, and et cetera. And by and large, they're they're complying as much as Europeans in that sense. I think that's been the sort of story of less cultural difference than that. Now, yeah, fair enough, certain states, but this gets back to the question of what is the unit of measurement? Why are we measuring the United States next to France, next to Italy as a unit when, you know, the United States is a continental, you know, country? So that's one yeah. point. I mean, fair enough, you know, that's 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 debatable. The interesting thing is again the question it's getting back to what I was getting at that 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 this feeling that we're getting this wrong right it's people love talking about again Trump and just fucking up and I I'll, I I have thoughts about like specifically what we can say where Trump really did fuck up um but but you know what it is it's like there's only one policy that quote unquote works and that's lockdown there's no there's no this whole concept of you know there's a we need to trust the experts etc cetera, etc cetera. Lockdown works, but it's not sustainable. That's, I think, the reality that's coming out. And this gets back to then internalizing this, like, you know, emerging higher death rates. There's one policy that works. It is patently unsustainable. It's going to get loosened. 
and there will be consequences of it. Well, it depends. I mean, if you look at Germany, where the lockdown was uh, less uh, severe than in France, Italy, or even in some American states, I think what worked is testing. And that's exactly my point. And this is where, you know, Trump's going to be pushing this whole line about experts and lockdown and unsustainable and the rest of it. But that, to me is the key place where if there's smart politics to be done, this is the 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 cross they nail his fucking balls to is that 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 the federal government really needed to do one thing and that is really go all out to figure out testing for everyone. And then then you can start crafting local policies and be smart about this thing and the other, be reactive and the rest of this. Then even you can say you can say things like, well, you know, uh because let's not forget when this crisis started, we weren't talking about saving lives, though obviously that was behind it. It wasn't about death rates. It was not overwhelming the healthcare system. That's the main thing is we don't want people dying from heart attacks and cancer treatment because they can't get it because there's too many COVID patients that aren't even being treated. I mean, the COVID thing specifically is about overwhelming the system. So testing gets you on top of that problem. So then you can build up the capacity and all the rest of this. That to me is the, the single failure of Trump. And I, you know, as we talk about this and the, 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 the policy blindness and not the rest of this, I think this is where America is fundamentally in a really bad place. Yeah. The lockdowns were always about damage control. That's right. Always about, you know, this is a temporary measure to flatten the curve, to not overwhelm the health system. And in the meantime, we're going to get a mask and we're going to get the testing capacities. That's right. That's right. You know, hopefully we're going to develop a vaccine in, 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 in the long run. Uh, and, and then you'll go back to normal life. However, you know, to go back to your point on, on Trump and the politics of this, you know, what worries me is that he has uh, this uh, unbelievable capacity to shape the debate, yes. to force his opponents to go on his, uh, on his ground. And, um, you know, what you're already seeing right now is I think he understands that uh, his, uh, his main uh, point of record, which was the economy, uh, is, is not going to be there at the election. I, I wouldn't blame him for this. I mean, every European country and you know Asian country is going to go through a, a major recession. But obviously, he's not going to be able to boast about his numbers. Yeah. So he's going to have to find something else. Except for the stock. So well, the I stock market is yeah, not the stock market the rebounding. But the problem is that, I mean, look, we'll, we'll see how long this lasts when all of the major uh, markets of uh, uh, economic partners of the United States are going to be in major recessions. But no, it seems that I think if he tried tries to shift the conversation, he shifts this to China yeah. and to national security. That's right. And um, and a lot of us are going to be torn, and a lot of Democrats are being torn about this because I think they agree on uh, with the idea that, um, uh, first, that uh, the major foreign policy priority of the United States is strategic competition with China. They agree with the fact that the regime lied about uh, the virus, that it covered up, um, and it fumbled its propaganda effort in, afterwards. Um, the problem is how far is this going to escalate? How far is, is Trump ready to take it? Uh, and, and that's something that worries me a little bit when I hear U.S. officials talking about uh, having evidence that this originated in, in a lab when other uh, intelligence agencies from allies are saying, we, we've seen nothing of this. And most experts seem to think, and you don't even need this. You don't even yeah. need this to actually make a case with allies that uh, that China lied, yeah. um, and and obviously you know for I think for all of us it, it makes us think of uh, 2002, 2003, and uh, the overreach on uh, on weapons of mass destruction, the intelligence there. 
Right. No, right. I mean, the, the Aussies have already called the Intel nonsense, right. you know, like that was the, that was the, the story this week that, that, that jumped out at me on that. Here's the interesting thing. I, I was talking to uh, some other colleagues about this. Uh, the whole thing about decoupling and trade, right, with China and that you're right. I think Trump is definitely focusing on that. Maybe there's a there's a there's a, a slight thing. His friend sent me an article in Reuters today um, about rebalancing, you know, all of this trade away from China and to other allies in the Asia Pacific region. Yeah, it's called TPP, you know. <laughs> And that's going to be the best part of this is like when Trump actually rebrands TPP and gets America into it before the end. Because I mean, it's, it's T for Trump. T for Trump, right? <laughs> the Trump Pacific Partnership. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I, it's. I think. I think that's 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 pretty much right on on this. And so, strategy for Democrats has to be on the one hand, I, I think you know something incontrovertible uh, is is pointing to the fact that that. We're flying blind on this, but that's not a really sexy political point, but it's on testing because that is, you know, I, I think that that there's a temptation what 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 on the left, a lot of people are, are it's this like technocrat idolatry. And I think Trump brings that out in people because he's such a bore. He's such a he's such a uh, uh, uncultured, uncouth animal. And they just we love to sneer at him. Right. And that's one of the worst ways that Democrats can approach this. And exactly. even I've, as we've talked about before, I sometimes fall victim to this approach where sometimes I fantasize, even as some, someone who's as anti-technocratic as I am, Yeah. sometimes I like dream, literally, like, no, well, not literally, but like I dream about like brilliant scientists just like running the response to coronavirus and just deciding shit. Right. But and, that's the but it's dangerous. Aaron Sorkin is writing the pandemic response. <laughs> but but that's the thing, right? I, again, like this is the part that that strikes me about all of this is no, like he's li he's literally part of a committee. It's not even a joke. No, come Aaron on. Sorkin. Wait, no, guys, I, I swear, no, I I, I, I you, you know, you're talking about the West Wing and you're like, okay, you know, I'm like, I'm not even joking. I think I read something. That there's like, it's not like a scientific committee, but it's like a, t it's like a, he's part of some committee in Hollywood Oh, that yeah. like is dealing with how we can kind of promote public awareness, or maybe that was literally in a dream of mine, <laughs> but, but in any case, but yeah, we have to resist that urge. Well, it's because the, the interesting thing is that it's, it's, it's not true. I, I, that's the thing that, that gets to me the most. And this is the part, and again, comparing to Europe, is that I, I just don't think that anything has worked apart from lockdowns. No amount of like this, that, or the other thing has worked. Not that there's been much proposed, I guess, and lockdown is, is an, uh, tech, technically a technocratic thing, but it's also like the oldest response to plague ever, right? It's, it's, there's nothing new about this. And so all these charts and all, oh, we need to do this and time it the other way. I don't think it's it's we're, we we know so little about it. Um, and so the only the only like I said, again, to, to return to it, it's testing is the only toehold we have on knowledge on all of this. And the narrative, again, it's the temptation of Democrats to 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 go hard against this. And maybe that's the opening for Trump in all of this is to. If he can convince people enough that the experts are. That. Whatever the truth is, the experts are further from it than he is. And there's an equalizing between, oh, a colleague said this the other day, uh, if between a clown and an expert and people are compared, well, they're both wrong. Well, they'll like 
the clown comes out better from than the doctor. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like in that sort of thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And I think that's if if Democrats do go that route, I think I think we're we're going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. And but I feel like that urge is so overwhelming and overpowering for people who just want everything to be what they would fact based. And, I, you know, I think this whole discourse of fact based politics and if only we could have competence, it's it's just getting the American public wrong. It's misunderstanding why people might potentially be, I think, anyway, yeah, I, I, Democrats always find a way to lose at the end of the day. I mean, that's what, that's what this really comes down to. They just don't understand voters and what drives voters. You know, what's, what's really interesting to me in this crisis is that some of us, and, and Shadi wrote a great piece about this in The Atlantic, and I agreed with it at the time, not anymore. <laughs> not, not, not anymore. And I don't think you even, I, I don't know if you agree with it anymore. You know, I didn't agree with it at the time. I'll just say, I'm gonna was, I think it was called the virus killed the revolution, right? Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and it was the idea that, um, that now we're all striving for a word of, of boring experts making fact and data, data-based uh, decisions, right? And cost-benefit analysis. Um, but everything we've been talking about today deeply philosophical questions, yeah. right? I mean, what's where do you put the balance between the risk and uh, reopening your economy? Uh, what's the value you assign to to human life? I mean, I know there's the actuarial uh, uh, calculation you can make, but I actually disagree with this. I don't think anyone's calculating on this. I yeah. think it's a question of mm. it's value based, right. right? It's deeply political, yeah. And and you have you had different hierarchies of, of of values and philosophical models on this. That's one thing. The other thing is as we rebuild the world after this, uh, of course, it's expanding imagination. Of course, you know, we're going to have, it, it, in a way, it's such a difficult, challenging, but also fascinating time to work in, in think tanks and policy organizations. We're going to have to think about multilateral organizations. We're going to have to think about, uh, you know, reinventing sovereignty. People are having, I know these debates appear very dry and technical on, on uh, reintegrating supply chains, but in a way, they're completely fascinating because here again, they're all about value. They're the idea that for decades, since basically the 80s and the 90s, we've been driven only by profits and, and 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 try to maximize as as much as possible the profits of our companies. And now we realize that as nations or as the European Union, uh, we we consider that even if it makes us waste money, we want to keep a, a form of sovereignty over food security, over the pharmaceutical industry, uh, over uh, uh, the production of of, of uh, medical equipments, and so. These are here again. These are deeply uh, a political and and, and value based questions. And so, if you run for office saying, "Let's just listen to the scientists," you're completely missing the point. Yeah. So, but in my in my defense, <laughs> I think what I was trying to get at a little bit more in the article was the craving for normalcy in abnormal times. Yeah. That a lot of us just want things to get back to normal. We don't want. We don't want grand ideological experiments. We don't want or even need socialist revolution right now. We just want to do the things that we were used, like at least, like we want to be able to just be to what? Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, go. Yeah, no. That's yeah, how, that's how, I mean normalcy. I mean, like, don't we? Isn't that what? So, so, so yeah. Look, the, the only thing that that why I think that 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 uh, uh, not that you guys are on different sides, but I, I like what Ben is saying resonates so much. Um, I was talking to, 
uh, several conversations actually about this. Uh, Nils Gilman and, and Ben Judah. All Demir does is talk to people that's during all coronavirus. That's all I do. You guys and others, <laughs> sometimes in public, sometimes not. Um, and and it's 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 uh, what you're getting at, Ben. I think why this is such a I think uh, ultimately going to be such a stimulating and inventive time. Uh, as Ben Judah said, it's like it's it's. Arguably, this is not exactly right because it happened earlier, but you have a kind of this is a, a different kind of end of history moment. It's like the end of of call it medical history, because I don't know, I haven't read a lot of these books about about uh, plagues. But this one by the the professor at Yale talks about uh, large extent and the 20th century story is one of progress. And we have we have established a means and there was all this talk that the disease is going away. For example, now AIDS was the big uh, comeuppance to that, so it kind of ended then at the same time as the end of, as as the end of history moment dawned. But this also does feel like a, like another blow to a lot of certainties, you know, like the certainties that started in '89 that like we've got this, you know, we were right in 1945, we built the better world, finally the breakthrough in 1989. Now it's just coasting to the rest of this. That narrative has been taking body blows like at at regular intervals and this feels like like another one right that 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 sense of optimism and and um i don't know uh progressive uh momentum that's 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 taken a big hit and that's why i think yeah ultimately i'm kind of i'm more excited than not for the future for it being actually uh yeah it's going to be a more dangerous place uh, a less happy place uh a less Pleasant life. Well, Michelle Ulebeck actually made a point in an interview <laughs> that people were making fun of that I thought was kind of amusing. Hey, but the great, um, at least I think we think he's the great French novelist. Some people hate him, but um, he 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 had like a very glib comment that hey, you know, it's things are going to be the way they always were, just a little bit worse, right? No, and there was right. something like just so refreshing about it. Like people who are hoping for transformative change and all that, you know what? Humans kind of suck. I mean, he's got this not this nihilistic vibe that just colors everything he says and writes. He also said there's nothing redeemable about this virus. It's not even sexually transmitted. That was the best. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> oh, it's such a great line. You have to admit it's a great line. No, no, that's the best line, all of it. It's just like you know, so so it, it, it I've been I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Um what is a turning point, right? I mean, it's become the most cliche phrase in politics and international relations, and we've all used it a hundred times. The world will never be the same. It's a wake-up call. It's a turning point, whatever. Um, but but there are moments in history that are like this, right? I mean, I think you can, you can easily argue that uh, the world before 1945 was very different from the world after yeah. 1945 for structural reasons. Obviously, the end of the war, collapse of empires but uh, also because you had a, a group of American leaders who decided to shape institutions to, to build a different world. Why did they do it? How? I mean, there's lots of debates, but, but clearly you have a, a few years, you know, the years between 46 and 48 that are incredible in terms of creativity and leadership coming from the United States. In 1918, 1919, you have the, the collapse of, uh, of, of the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so you have structural changes um, you know, we all lived through 9-11. It, for me, it's more of a question mark. Was it a turning point or not? It was a turning point because of what the U.S. administration made of it. Correct. But it wasn't a turning point in terms of how we lived. Like, I don't, I mean, for, for some of us, it changed our lives. Like, my whole, I, I, like, what I decided to major in, my whole career 
uh, trajectory changed because of that. But that's also a little bit unusual because for me, the Middle East has always been a point of interest. I think for most Americans, their lives did not change in any fundamental way. But Ben's point is right. But it's, Ben's yeah, point, yeah. It's, 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 it was the, the, the first like catastrophic own goal by the United States. That's yeah, in shaped, terms of our policy. Yeah. And, and, it's, and, it, yeah. and it's shaped and it's shaped American. I don't know. I don't want to say decline. I don't, I'm not smart enough to know whether it's actual decline, but it set us back. It set us back where we could have been because it was a, a catastrophic own goal and, and, and pox on all the, the, the fools that, that still write today and haven't actually. Also, there's a new American it. declinist narrative that is emerging because of coronavirus. And I'm just like, People have been making declinist arguments like literally for the last 50 years. For sure. Like, and, and it's always like, so are we just perpetually in decline? No, for sure. There's that. But I do, I, I do want to say against the, the, your Wellebeck, not the, the sex Wellebeck. That's the correct <laughs> Wellebeck, but your Wellebeck about all the same, but, uh, but worse. Yeah, sure. But I don't think it'll be all the same, but worse, only because I think you shouldn't look at these events as singular things. I think that, you know, the last few years and uh, the rise of populism and and uh, all of these things have been a series of body blows to a certain kind of certainty that, again, was codified in, let's say, 1989 and is part of an ideology that congealed since 1945. And it's falling apart. And I think this is one one more kick in the in the shins maybe higher up a couple of feet up from the shins but like but of of this of this ruling paradigm maybe this doesn't break it but i think it's it's taken a lot of hits maybe maybe the changes are are simply uh uh you know a uh a sharper elbowed fight over trade and a realignment and questions about sovereignty as ben was putting them and how we deal with china and that's done differently but it would be wrong to say that we're going back to to something. I think part of the 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 yearning for normalcy, and it's a yearning for normalcy among many like never Trump people and uh, Democrats, is again to back to a certain kind of I think prosperity of the Clinton times and an imagined deference to both expertise and uh, a faith in that America was on the right side of history no matter what. All of these are taking blows. Within America, outside of America, the whole direction of history, it's not coming back, I don't think. But, but, but it's interesting, right? Because a lot of this is performative. Uh, you know, the, the, the change happens because someone seizes the moment and shapes it, yep. right? So right now, we all feel that something's going on, but uh, the world might be exactly the same. As Welbeck said, exactly the same, but a little worse. You know, I talked to my dad at the beginning of this, and uh, he's a businessman, and he was telling me, it was funny, he said, you know, uh, I remember the financial crisis, economic crisis in 1990, and then uh, he's in tech, so he clearly you know, suffered from the 2000 uh, tech crisis. He says, I remember the 2008 crisis. He said, each time, we're all saying, this is huge, the world will never be the same, and it'll be completely different afterwards. And then you realize a couple of years later, it's exactly the same. And just financial markets has gone back up, and mm -hmm. you know we're just trading as we used yeah. to. And so that was his initial reaction. And I thought it was actually very interesting. And, and I don't know, I mean... Is he still uh, thinking that way? I, you know, he's, he's in a wait and see mode, but it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, maybe it will be exactly the same. The, the crux of the debate on 9-11, or on September 12th, rather, um, was that I think Americans considered 9-11, because of the extent of the trauma, 
to be a, uh, a world change moment uh, and that you know the, the world could never be the same. And I think a lot of Europeans uh, considered that 9-11, as horrible as it was, was not so much a turning point, was just a horrible terrorist attack, much more violent than previous terrorist attacks we've had. And so we needed to step up our cooperation and coordination on counterterrorism in, in, in the Middle East, but that didn't necessitate a complete overhaul of our worldview and strategy in, in the Middle East. And I think that led to a lot of the disagreements between uh, neocons and, and, and Europeans over what to do uh, with Iraq, right? There was this, this ambition in the United States to uh, reshape the Middle East and promote democracy, Whereas I think for uh, for a lot of French, especially at the time we opposed the Iraq war, just needed a vast police operation uh, against mm. terrorism. But at the heart of the debate was whether 9-11 was a turning point or not, necessitated to completely revise your worldview. And I think we're going to see the same thing today. And so the question is, you know, who rises? Who's the Lenin who rises and, and completely <laughs> reshapes this moment? Shadi Hamid, I think. <laughs> He's the Lenin for well, our times. Let I, me just say, Shadi, I, I, I want to put the, the marker down. We've been going for more than an hour. So, uh, you know, just, oh, yeah, just, yeah. just throwing that out for as here. So, I don't know. Take us home, yeah, yeah, Lenin. Sure, but I'll just maybe one last thing <laughs> that we can kind of close on. Yeah. A better event to compare this to would be perhaps the Spanish flu. Or wait, wait, is it, that might be politically That's incorrect. That's the, racist now. Yeah. The 1917 but, Spanish flu? <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because I think Lenin came about, I, I actually, this is where my history skills actually get a little bit shaky, but I think Lenin was vaguely around the same time. Yeah. But I don't think that, I don't even know if they had the Spanish flu in, in Russia. But putting that aside, um, it's interesting because I think Jill Lepore actually wrote something where she like read all the books about the plague or that plague or, and plagues past even before that. And she tried to come up with some big conclusions. I don't want to put Ben on the spot, but last time I was at Ben's place, he had a bunch of plague books in a pile. So it seems like he's doing some Spanish flu previous pl plagues reading. And I don't know how far you've gotten, but maybe maybe next time we can actually discuss what you got out of all those books. But the, there you, is a pile in your, have you in your living room. I mean, I have some of those pl plague books that are on your pile. I mean, how have so, you? So look, I've read a, a few of these, of these books. And, and um, one thing that strikes me is, you know, it's, it's extremely interesting to hear about uh, the history of pandemics. Uh, and it is kind of a forgotten history, especially for people like us who are interested in political history. What, what I have found less convincing is when the authors try to tie it to uh, political events. You know, so for example, you have this book, Epidemics in Society, um, that will tell you about, you know, plagues um, uh, affecting uh, French soldiers during the Napoleonic War. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the Russian campaign is a, is a well-known example. Um, you have the, the, the German offensive, the spring offensive by Germany in 1918 was, uh, was slowed down by the, the, the influenza, oh. the Spanish flu. So that might have had an impact on the end of the First World War. So you have, I think, anecdotal evidence to show that epidemics had an impact on, on wars. I mean, the, um, the Peloponnesian War, actually, Thucydides writes about the plague and, yeah. and writes about the impact that it has on Athens. And that also had... Uh, an impact on 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 the conduct of of operation at the time, but I I just 
have find this less convincing in um, you know in making an argument that uh, broad political changes were affected by disease. Yeah, uh, there's that there's that book. It's on your pile. I don't know if, if it's <laughs> well, one everyone that, knows about Ben's pile <laughs> because we've been it, breaking it, the it, law it, for it, a while. It feels like we haven't been socially distancing that much. Um, the the what's it? Plagues and Peoples by McNeil. I don't know if you made it through that one or yeah. Or, so th- actually, this one is more convincing. Yeah, I'll say why because he's actually not trying to be anecdotal. Yeah, he's really looking at broader swaths right. of population, yeah. um, and and that's you know it's it's kind of like it's more sapiens type uh, big history. So it's um, you know you you don't get clear talking points out of it on you know specific anecdotes. But, uh, but but I, I think that's actually more interesting. And also he makes um, a, a very powerful argument. Um, you know, it, it's just really well written on uh, the, the connection between what happens in your body and the way a virus works mm-hmm. to the way, you know, broader swaths of population uh, interact. Yeah, I found that really compelling. And the other part that was just that jumped out of me, I'm, I'm halfway through it, I'm not done yet, but there was a, there was a passage in there that actually says that... Uh, one theory of na- the emergence of nationalism in Central Eastern Europe, especially in Austria-Hungary, says like that that the 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 ravages in the cities uh, killed off nobility, and then the influx of peasantry with their own sort of vernacular. And I guess around 1850, there was a there was an outbreak of of some of some bug that really did do this that led to led to the rise of nationalism. But ah, who knows? That that seemed to me a little too narrow. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> On that well, note, it's great to have you, Ben, and yeah. uh, hopefully this will be the the first of many times. As, and as I want to fa- get into some more French culture next time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can do because the French are very unusual as a people because they're cultured. We <laughs> are very unusual people and unusual people. Anyway, thanks. See you guys later. Yeah. Thank you. Bye.